The following message was recorded at Fountain of Life Fellowship in Fountain Valley, California. For more information, visit www.folfcrc.com. All right, so last week we began our study through this incredible Gospel of Mark. Remember a few things. Mark was a close associate of the Apostle Peter. So he wrote this account of Jesus' life, <clears throat> excuse me, from Peter's eyewitness testimony just 30 years or something after the life of Jesus. What we saw last week, there's three essential questions at the heart of this book. They're so incredibly important for each one of us. Number one, who is Jesus? Who is he? We have to deal with that. Number two, what did he come to do? What did he come to do? And number three, after you take those first two into account, how should I respond to him? <clears throat> well, we saw, didn't we? Right away, page 836. Right away, Mark tells us who Jesus is, and very plainly, right? He says, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Let's remember a few things. The word gospel, that was familiar to Mark's Roman audience. It means something like good news that changes everything. And so they would use this word for... Um, if the army won a battle or the arrival of a new king, good news, it changes everything. Mark says, well, here, let me tell you the true gospel. Let me, let me tell you the real thing, the actual gospel. Jesus has come, and he changes everything. <clears throat> Why? He's the Christ. What does that mean? It's a title, promised divine king. He's the one who's going to save his people. He's going to judge and renew the world. And so the gospel is who Jesus is. He's come. <clears throat> so Mark has told us who Jesus is. We saw that last week. Now Mark is going to start showing us who Jesus is. He's going to show us. And in our passage this morning, right, it's so condensed, it's so small. And yet you get two fundamental events that just set the stage for the entire rest of the book. Without these two events, the rest of the book doesn't make sense. These two events in the life of Jesus, number one is baptism and his temptation. And they're going to show us very clearly more of who Jesus is, what he came to do, and then we're going to see how to respond to him, right? We're going to answer those three questions. So I want to give us three points as we unpack all this. Number one, reality. Number two, representation. Number three, replication. Reality, representation, replication. Here we go. Verses 9 to 11, you get the baptism of Jesus Christ. And you probably noticed right away how blatantly Trinitarian the baptism is. Did you see it? First of all, <clears throat> Jesus arrives on the scene. All the crowds coming to John, he's baptizing them in the river. Jesus arrives. His baptism is very different. A divine presence that is not Jesus comes to be with Jesus. Not only that, a divine voice that is not Jesus' voice comes and speaks to Jesus. And so here we encounter this amazing truth no human would ever invent. We see something here that is starkly unique from all the other contenders of philosophy, of religion. 
What do we see here? The real and living God, the only God there ever is or will be, he is a triune God. He is a triune God. So let's sit there for a minute. What do we mean by that? Well, put very simply, how many, how many gods do we believe in, church? One God. It's not a club of three friendly gods who decided to get together. No. One God. And yet, is this God a monopersonic God, just one person? No. This is one God in, that exists in three distinct persons. The Westminster Shorter Catechism, question six, sums it up quite nicely. Let's look at it. How many persons are there in the Godhead? Why don't you read it to me? There are three persons in the Godhead, the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit. These three are one God, the same in substance, equal in power and glory. So as far as the substance of God goes, the essence of God, who's God, the Father or the Son? No, wrong question. Yes, they're, they're both truly God. And yet, is the person of the Son the same person as the person of the Father? No, they are distinct. One God, three persons. And I know, right, we admit this is intellectually challenging, okay? Do you want a God who's not intellectually challenging for you? You realize the problem that might create? If you can fully understand God, no offense, it's not a very impressive God. God is, he's, he's holy, he's other, he's different, he's revealed himself as triune. You know, sometimes Christians seem a little embarrassed about this. So you believe in a trinity, and we're like, trinity, and then we're like, well, you know, don't ever do this, okay? But have you heard this? Think of an egg, and already you're on the wrong track, right? I'm thinking about God, and now I'm thinking about an egg. What? Well, there's a, there's a shell, and uh, the egg white and the yolk uh, stop, right? <laughs> stop. That, that's, not a, that's not a good illustration. But you shouldn't be embarrassed about the Trinity at all. You should, be, you should just be boldly triumphant about the beauty of this God. There's nothing truer, more, nothing more beautiful than this core reality. But let's use the biblical illustration for understanding the Trinity, Okay? Jesus teaches you to pray. What's the disciples' prayer? How does it start? Our, what's he say? Our Father. My Father, Jesus says. And if you belong to me, your Father. Our Father. That's where we start. There is an eternal Father. And, and a Father, by definition, is not alone. The eternal Father is eternally with someone, uh, his perfect image. He's eternally with his eternal son, whom he knows and he loves. Not only that, the, the son is an eternal son. He has always been in delightful fellowship with his father. He delights in his father. His father delights in him. And so then, the, then the Holy Spirit, friends, is the Holy Spirit a person or a force? Person, person. I like to say he's the person of the love and the fellowship of the Father and the Son. Let's look at this ancient creed. The Nicene Creed sums up biblical teaching on the Spirit very well. Look at this. Let's read this together. We believe in the Holy Spirit, 
the Lord, the giver of life, who proceeds from the Father and the Son. And with the Father and the Son, he is worshiped and glorified. So we see here, we meet at the beginning of Jesus' ministry and his baptism, we see reality that the nature of God is triune. We also see triune love at the baptism. Triune love. First of all, if this is true, this means this human walking up to this river in the midst of this crowd to be baptized, this man, Jesus of Nazareth, he is the eternal son of God who has taken on human nature for us and our salvation. That's just, if you meditate on that, you ponder that, it's mind-blowing love that he would come at all. Mind-blowing love that he would come for you. You see the self-giving love of the Trinity. Let's send the Son. Not only that, you think of the perspective of Jesus' human nature. After growing up rather normally in relative obscurity, now his work of the Christ, it begins right here at his baptism. And so from the perspective of Jesus' humanity, isn't this the most daunting mission anyone has ever been on? Save everyone from their sins. Rescue them from sin and death. Daunting. And look what the Father does at the beginning of Jesus' ministry. And I just want to say, if you're a father, you ever want to be a father, here's a lesson from the father about what fatherhood ought to look like. From Jesus' human perspective, this is his moment of need. And look what happens as he goes down into the water. The heavens are ripped open. I don't know what that was like. But the reason is because the father's here. He showed up. He was present. He's here. Not only that, he sends the person of the Holy Spirit. Why does he look like a dove? I'm, I'm really sh confident that this refers back to creation itself, where the Spirit of God is hovering over the waters. And so as, as God, just as God created all things, Father, Son, and Spirit, so now it's a new creation as Jesus is here. But he's, he's giving the son, because Jesus is going to, in his human nature, right, he's going to be now anointed with the power of the Holy Spirit to provide him with everything that he needs. The father's providing for his son. And then I think best of all, the father speaks his love to his son. Isn't, could you hear more beautiful words than these? Here he is. My son, this is who you are. You're my son. And I love you. I am perfectly pleased with you. Don't you see triune love here at the baptism? Love for us. But even more than that, love within, within the persons of the Trinity. It's incredible. In the baptism of Jesus, you are seeing who Jesus is as the eternal and beloved Son of God. You're also seeing a picture of ultimate reality. So give me a few minutes here to just put a, a rock in your shoe on what 
maybe it can be a complicated idea. It's complicated because I'm not very good at communicating it. But don't you think this triune nature of God has enormous implications for how we understand life? Let's just, let's, let's ponder that for a moment. Have you ever wondered, and you should, why are we here? Why is all of this here? And how does all this stuff around me possibly fit together in any meaningful way? What's the story, right? Humans are storytelling creatures. We just have to have, a st- we have to have an explanation. We have, a st- we have to have a story. What does this mean? So then we have discussions about these stories, trying to explain what life is about. And often the, the different stories compete, right? This movement, that movement, we're, we're telling different stories, explaining life, and these stories compete. So, so what's the true story of why we're here, where we're going? You know, it's a popular thing in my experience for people to try to measure Christianity <clears throat> by a story they consider to be a greater story. So here's one example. <clears throat> you, maybe you tell somebody, oh, I'm a Christian. And say that person says, well, I'm really glad you found something that helps you. Have you encountered language like that before? I'm a Christian. Well, I'm really glad you found something that helps you. Is your religion helps you? That's great. And, and you're, you're like, hold on, what just happened? That person didn't say, why do you think Christianity's true? I mean, that would be a legit question. That'd be straight to the point. Instead, instead of seeing Christianity as an issue of truth, they're putting Christianity as an issue of self-help. Some people go to yoga. Some people go exercise. Some people do Christianity. It's just self-help. But do you see what they're doing? This is always the case. They're using another story that they're claiming to be a bigger story than the story of Christianity. Do you see? And so maybe in that case, from that point of view, something like, well, the big story is, is you should just live a happy life as you define it. And then however you want to do that, that's cool. You know, Christianity is that. Okay, that's cool. But friends, you realize, taken on its own terms, Christianity cannot be a mini-story. It cannot be a hobby. It cannot be a true for you. It is either the story that defines all other stories, or it's a lie and no story at all. Okay? So think about the stories our society tells us. I'm going to just... I'm going to toy with two. I'm going to leave a lot of loose ends. I'm sorry. I don't have time for more. But here's one story. In our cultural moment, society has an assumed story of life they're communicating to us, right? And isn't it heavily influenced by materialism? Isn't there a part of the story, right? Ultimate reality, we are told, for many voices, is ultimately material, right? So everything just randomly appeared out of nothing. We're told that, right? And then... By blind physical forces, life evolves and improves through natural selection, survival of the fittest. Isn't that what we're told? And that's the core of the story, we're told. That's ultimate reality. So sure, many will say, yeah, I'm still spiritual. But in that story, there's no awesome transcendent creator God. 
Material is foundationally ultimate. So, so say you, you buy that a little bit, but then you start to see some cracks in the wall of these stories society tells us. So here's, an, here's another societal belief. Maybe you've heard this. They'll tell you the, sto- the story of humanity is explained by social groups oppressing each other. Have you heard that? It's explained by social groups oppressing each other. We oppress one another economically, racially, religiously. And so in this view, like the, like the pagan creation stories of old, life is fundamentally violence. And, th- and that makes sense if, if the core force is driving us our natural selection. Natural selection is not full of compassion, have you noticed? And yet, now I have a question. Do you have a question? Why is one group oppressing another group, bad or evil, if ultimate reality is violent natural selection emerging from random accident? Do you see the contradiction? Why is it evil? What does the word bad even mean in a meaningless world that's ultimately material? It can't explain what it claims to explain. Here's another popular story, one more. In the modern West, we're fed a value you could call expressive individualism. Okay? If that doesn't make sense to you, I think this next line will. We're told that our individual desires determine what's good for us. Do what you feel. We are told that in the story of life, to what it means to be truly heroic is to break free from oppressive structures that would hold you back and instead authentically express your invention of who you are. Express your invention of who you are. Well, I have a question for that story as well. Why would we believe the individual has value and authority like that? Why would we believe that? And how, how would that story answer the question? So the main, tra- the main thing I'm trying to get at here is I just want us to consider, you are going to be told so many stories about life, and most of them are horribly simplistic. And what we're seeing in this text is ultimate reality that explains every other story right here. Other stories may show you a grain of truth about life, but they cannot explain life itself, and ultimately they get life wrong. Reality, ultimate reality, is the triune God. So let me give you three things for the nature of reality, for life itself, because we know that God is triune. Number one, the Trinity means ultimate reality is personal. Ultimate reality is not material. Behind the reality of material is personal. Creative persons with a mind, desires, who live in fellowship. And isn't this the ground for believing that life has meaning and persons have value? You are not just what chemicals do at this temperature. You are made in the image of a personal God 
which is why persons are valuable. Here's another one. Reality is absolute because of the triune God. Here's what I mean. The triune God is unchanging in who he is. And the reality of this unchanging, righteous God who designs all things and makes them good. Again, here's loose ends I'm going to leave, but just to throw a rock in your shoe. The absolute reality of the triune God actually makes things like science and justice possible. It's the ground for science even being able to function. How could, how could science and justice function in a world that's fundamentally random, chaotic, and meaningless? Not only that, the Trinity is the ground for knowing why oppression of other humans is evil. The, the things these other stories are trying to get at, we have in the triune God. We see because he is reality. Finally, best of all, reality is love. You realize that? If the Trinity is real, reality is love. God is love. Look at what Jesus prays at the end of John 17. Just take this in. He's praying for his people. He says, Father, I desire that they also whom you have given me may be with me where I am to see my glory that you have given me because you loved me before the foundation of the world. What was happening before creation was even made? The father loved the son. The son loved the father. The three persons of the Trinity existed in perfect fellowship, and they are self-giving. They're self-giving. They glorify the other. And so if it's true that God himself is a unified, joyful communion of self-giving love, he creates the world then not out of need, but out of sufficiency and generosity. And yes, things are broken now due to our sin, our rebellion, but God is going to bring salvation to his people. He's going to renew the world. And through Jesus, God is inviting us into the love that he already is. So here's what I want you to get at, if you didn't catch most of what I was trying to say. The truest, most beautiful reality is the triune God. That's what we're seeing right here. This is truth. This is beauty. I'll finish this point with a quote from C.S. Lewis. And I'm bringing in this quote because he's giving you an example of switching story allegiances. He, he says, I used to buy the science story as the story of life. And then he's saying, science can't do it. Science can't fit these other things I know are true, but the story of the Christian God can. So look at what he says. I am certain that in passing from the scientific point of view to the theological, I have passed from dream to waking. Christian theology can fit in science, art, morality, and even the sub-Christian religions. The scientific point of view cannot fit in any of these things, not even science itself. I believe in Christianity as I believe that the sun has risen, not only because I see it, but because by it I see everything else. That's what I want for us. By it, the triune God who saves us in Christ, his word, by it, we see everything else. 
So in the baptism, we see reality. All right, second point, representation. Mark 1, verse 9, he says, In those days, Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee, was baptized by John in the Jordan. So at this point, you should all be a little perturbed. Why should you be perturbed? Well, we're all, we, we sh- if we're paying attention, we should all say, hey, Mark, you told us about John's baptism and what it means. And then you told us about who Jesus is. It makes no sense to us that Jesus is being baptized by John. Do you see the difficulty? Why? Well, last week we looked at John, his message, what he was about. But his main thing, he's preaching a baptism of repentance for forgiveness. Basically, he's saying to everyone, no matter how religious you are, no matter how many Bible verses you know, no matter how much you went to church, no matter any of that stuff, you are not good enough for a holy God on your own. You've, you've sinned, and you need, to come, you need to confess your sins. You need to repent, and baptism will be this picture of, of God's mercy cleansing you, washing you clean so that you can be forgiven. But he's saying to everybody, you need God's forgiveness, and the only way to come into that is humble repentance. Confess your need. So why, then, is Jesus being baptized by John? You see the problem? Does Jesus need to confess his sins? No. Does Jesus need to repent? No. And the voice of God in the baptism makes it clear, doesn't it? God is saying to you, this is my son with whom I'm well pleased. In other words, he did not need to repent. He had nothing for which to be forgiven. He's perfect. So why is the perfect son of God who doesn't need to be repentant, doesn't need to be forgiven, why is he undergoing the sign of you're sinful, you need to be forgiven and cleansed? Great question. You know, if you read the Gospel of Matthew, John the Baptist is even perturbed by this. Jesus walks up. Jesus says to John, I'm paraphrasing, hey, you got to baptize me? John says, what? I can't baptize you. Jesus basically says, just do it. It's right. Trust me. It's the right thing. Just do it. Okay. What's happening? Jesus is representing us. He's taking our place. There's a load we have to lift. We can't lift. Jesus came to lift it. As you start thinking about this, your Bible starts to pop open. Adam, in a way, was the son of God, right? He's made in the image of God, given dominion over creation to represent God. He was tempted. What happened? He failed. Israel, nation of Israel, called the son of God in a personified way. Israel was tempted. How'd they do? They failed. Everyone coming to John at the river, is, they're all saying, I was tempted and I failed. I failed. And so as Jesus is baptized, it's like he's going down into our dirty water so that we can be clean. He's walking in our shoes. He's representing us. Jesus is saying, I have come to wear your failure and give you my success. I've come to take your sin and your failure and give you my perfect life that you couldn't live. I'm taking your place. I'm representing you. Not only does he represent us in the baptism, he represents us in the temptation in the wilderness. So look, these two stories go together, right? Look at verse 11. A voice came from heaven, you're my beloved son. With you, I am well pleased. And then verse 12, it's shocking. It's like smacks you on the face. The Spirit immediately drove him out into the wilderness. 
Jesus goes immediately from this declaration of God's fatherly love on him to go suffer. Immediately. You know, it's kind of amazing how brief Mark is about the temptation, isn't it? You read Matthew and you, and you read Luke and you get way more detail about what was happening in that temptation. Um, as you read those, you see Satan attacks Jesus at this very intersection of identity and suffering. This is where he attacks you sometimes too, isn't it? Jesus is suffering in the wilderness and he's going to suffer more. And, G- and Satan always opens up with, are, are, you, are you really the son of God? And so the question is, if God really loved you like he said he loves you, why would he let this happen to you? Why would he let you suffer like this? That's where he tempts you too, isn't it? One of Satan's best teaching is that if you're a Christian, life will go easy for you. And therefore, it's not going easy for you. You must not be a Christian or God doesn't love you or something like that. It's liter- that message is literally satanic. It might be on your TV if you go to the wrong channel, but I'm telling you, it's satanic. That's what Satan's getting at with Jesus here. But Mark doesn't point that out. Let's look at what Mark points out. Number one, you see who the Holy Spirit just, it's the language of he just drives Jesus into the wilderness. He's, he's taking Jesus there. This is God's plan. And it's as if he's saying, go represent him. Go represent our people. Go stand in their place. And of course, wilderness here is, it's, it's real, but it's also very symbolic. What does the wilderness symbolize? It's, it was a dangerous place of testing in a way. It's full of enemies, including the enemy. Who's there? In Jesus' wilderness, Satan himself, our adversary. That's what his name means here, our adversary. Don't forget, isn't it true? There's a Satan, a spiritual being. He's brilliant. He's wretched. He's influential. He's wicked. He's out to ruin what God is doing. He's out to ruin you. And he does it with temptation, right? He does it with bad theology. He does it with a message. God's not good. His word's not true. Replace him with something else. So Satan here is tempting Jesus. But why 40 days? You know, out of Mark doesn't tell you very much, but he does tell you that. Why 40 days? Well, that should just echo out again from the pages of the Bible of how Jesus is walking our path. He's representing us. How long was Israel in the wilderness? 40 years. So if we were going to go into detail, spend a lot of time on this. When Jesus is a child, uh, he goes to Egypt for deliverance. Hey, doesn't that remind you? Remember the story of Joseph, Jacob, and his family? They go to Egypt to be delivered from the famine. And then uh, Israel's called God's son. And then they go into the water of the Red Sea being parted. They're saved, they're delivered. And then where do they go? The wilderness. And they're tested there in the wilderness. And how do they do? They fail. They fail. How does even the Old Testament end? It looks like it failed. Now Jesus comes. You you see this in the Gospel of Matthew as a child. He goes to Egypt to escape Herod. He goes to Egypt for deliverance. He comes out of Egypt, and then he goes into the waters of baptism. And then just like Israel, Egypt, water, he goes into where? The wilderness. But where Israel fails, Jesus succeeds. He's he's replaying our history. He's replaying our failed lives. He's come to do it for us. He's come to represent us.
And Mark doesn't show you the resolve of the temptation here, does he? He says, how does he end it? He ends it like this. Um, he was with the wild animals, and the angels were ministering to him. But he doesn't give you anything like, uh, and the temptation was over. Or he told the devil this, and the devil had to flee. Mark, Mark leaves it open. Why do you think that is? Here's what I think it is. He doesn't resolve Jesus' temptation because this testing in the wilderness is the challenge of Jesus' entire life, which will take him all the way to the cross. He's in the wilderness all the way to the cross because the whole time he's representing us. The whole time he's fighting every temptation. Uh, he's been tempted just like us in every way. The whole time he's living a perfect life in the midst of trial. The whole time he's doing it for us. Mark 10, we're going to go here pretty much every week. It's the core of what Jesus says about why he came. Who is he? He's the Christ, the Son of God. Why did he come? Look at Mark 10, to 34. See, we're going to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and the scribes. They will condemn him to death and deliver him over to the Gentiles. They will mock him and spit on him and flog him and kill him. You know, if we just stop there, imagine somebody's like, let me tell you what we're doing, okay? We're going to go to Jerusalem. They're going to, what were some of these words here? They're going to condemn me. They're going to mock me, spit on me, flog me. And that's where we're going. What would, would, would anyone want to say? Why are we going there? Let's go somewhere else. Right? It's like, and Jesus says, no, that's where we're going. And after three days, I'll rise. He came to die. He came to die because he's representing us. Verse 45, for even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to do what? To serve and give his life as a ransom for many. He's buying you for himself on the cross. He's representing you all the way there. He's lived the perfect life. He's gone through temptation. Now on the cross, he's taking the price for your sins. He's dying the death you deserve to die so that he can rise again for your justification through faith in him. He takes your sin. You receive his perfection. You can be right with a holy God. He's representing us all the way. The author of Hebrews explains this idea very clearly. Look at Hebrews 2, 17 to 18. Therefore, Jesus, and what's that third word? Had to be made like his brothers in every respect. So let's just think for a moment about the had. He had to be made like us in every respect. Why? This is the salvation of the triune God. The Father has ordained your salvation. He has sent Jesus to accomplish your salvation. The Spirit's going to apply your salvation. You're being brought into the life of the triune God by the triune God. And Jesus has to be made like us. And what does he call us in this text, those who trust him? He had to be made like his brothers and sisters. That's who we are to him. We're intimate, close family. 
He had to be made like his brothers in every respect so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. For because he himself has suffered when tempted, he's able to help those who are being tempted. The whole identity of a priest is to represent the people. And Jesus, the ultimate priest representing us in his life, his suffering, his temptation, he was perfect. And on the cross, he made that propitiation. He made that payment to pay for our sins, to make us right with God. What are we seeing here? Reality. God is triune. Jesus is his eternal son. What else are we seeing here? Representation. Jesus came to walk in your shoes live the life we couldn't live for our salvation. He represents us. Third point, replication. Replication. What does replication mean? What's it mean to replicate? It's to make a little copy. And and the idea I'm getting at here is Jesus came to represent you and take what you deserve so that you could have him and follow him. So so Jesus says, repent and believe the gospel. Turn from your other allegiances and trust yourself to him and look at the replication that happens. What was Jesus called in the baptism? You remember? This is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. You guys think of this. Through faith in him, you're united to Jesus Christ. Do you dare even believe this? What does the Father now say to you? This is my beloved son. This is my beloved daughter with whom I am well pleased. And then our hearts say, how can he say that about me? It's Because he's looking at what Jesus did for you as your substitute. This is at the heart of the gospel. Look, we sang about this. Look at Ephesians 1, 4 to 5. This is how we as Christians need to see ourselves through faith in Christ. In love, the Father predestined us for what? Adoption to himself as sons, which here means inheritors, but certainly sons and daughters through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, here's what I want you to see, with which he has blessed us in the beloved, who is the beloved, Jesus. And through faith, we're in him. So who are we? We're the beloved. It's a replication. Because Jesus, the perfect son, came for us. We're children of God. Not only that, we said at the core of reality is love. Because the triune God is love. Well, now who should we be having been loved like this? What should we be like? Loving, Ephesians 5.1. Look, therefore, who should we be? Be imitators of God. As what? Beloved children. Look, friends, you don't, you don't, Be like God so that God one day will love you. That would never work. No, through Christ, he already loves you before you imitate him. Put your faith in Christ. You're adopted. You're forgiven. But now, because you're a child of God, what should you do? Love like he does. 
Verse 2, walk in love as Christ loved us, gave himself for us a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. Through faith in Christ, you become a child of God, a beloved child. Through faith in Christ, we learn to love like he loves. Through faith in Christ, we endure like he endured. Did you notice in Mark's temptation, he says, Jesus was with the wild animals? Did you notice that? Does that seem strange to anybody? The other gospels don't mention this at all. It's so, it's so weird. Now, for us, we're like, I like wild animals. I go to the zoo, you know? <laughs> I like to hunt. I like wild animals. It's so different for this culture. But, but especially, he's not, it's, get nature documentaries out of your mind. You remember what we looked at last week? At this point, late 60s AD, Nero the emperor has gone crazy. The city of Rome has burned, and Nero blamed it on Christians. Roman historian Tacitus, late first century, wrote that in his, his histories. And part of what he said was happening is that Christians were being thrown in the Colosseum to what? The wild animals. Man, can you imagine? Can you imagine church down in the catacombs? And we're like, how's, how's Steve? He got thrown in, man. He got eaten. Would you still go to church? Would you, would you still stand tall to say, Jesus is Lord, not Caesar? Would you still say, I won't worship these other idols? Would you still say, I belong to Christ? How are you going to make it in the face of the wild animals? This is how Jesus went there first. He went there first. He did it for you. He endured for you. And now because you have him, his life, his presence, his resurrection, you find strength to endure for him, even in sorrow, even in suffering, even in tribulation, even in persecution. We're beloved children in Jesus. We love like Jesus loves in Jesus. We endure like Jesus endured because we're in Jesus. And then finally, what happens when he comes back? We will rise as he is risen. And Jesus' prayer, whether we die tonight or whether we wait till Jesus comes back, Jesus' prayer in John 17 will be answered. We will be with him forever. And we will meet the triune God face to face. And we will love what he loves and enjoy what he gives, all because Jesus took our place. That's what we're supposed to see in this passage. So who's Jesus, church? How would you answer that? He's the Christ, the Son of God. What did he come to do? He came to represent you all the way to and through the cross. How should you respond? Oh, man, devote yourself to him. Put your faith in him. Amen? Let's pray. God, there's no one like you, a triune God, a beautiful God, a glorious God. We are thrilled that you would reveal yourself to us. Lord, I pray you'd hit each one of us where we live today. We would see ultimate reality is you and who you are, one God and three persons. That we would see who Jesus is, the Christ, the Son of God. We would see how he came to represent us, that in him we can be righteous before you. We can be adopted as children of God. Lord, help us trust him, love him, grow to be like him, and take us all the way home to where we see you face to face. 
We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening. And we invite you to visit us Sunday mornings here at Fountain of Life Fellowship. For more information, visit www.fountainoflifefellowship.com.